0: Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Rough Draft. I'm your host, Reza Aslan. Today's guest on the Rough Draft pod is author, novelist, journalist, screenwriter. Uh, What else? He writes plays. He does one-man shows. Lawrence Wright is on the program. You may know him from some of his more Famous books like Going Clear, his inside look into Scientology, or The Looming Tower, which was about Al-Qaeda and the road to 9-11. His newest book is called End of October. It's a novel about a mysterious virus that starts off in Asia and sweeps across the globe, killing millions of people. And it's politicized by an incompetent American president, yet it's fiction and not the news. And this tells you everything you need to know about Lawrence Wright. Uh, This guy always seems to have his finger on the pulse of society, whether it was Looming Tower or Going Clear. He wrote the screenplay for The Siege, which was a movie about a terror attack that takes place in New York that changes the country forever, that came out before 9-11. And no, he's not a wizard, he he's not some kind of you know sorcerer. Uh, he's a journalist, and what he does really well is he pays attention to what's going on in the world, and he wraps those issues, those trends, those things that are just kind of right on the horizon, into his. Fiction and nonfiction work. And one of the main points of the conversation that I wanted to have with Lawrence is about the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction, particularly journalistic nonfiction. What is the difference between the two? Does it use different parts of the brain? Um, Is it different kinds of research? These are fundamentally two different genres. And of course, he even writes in other genres as well. So it's a very interesting conversation about what it takes in terms of craft to go from fiction to nonfiction to drama, and which of the three genres is clearest to his heart. I should mention one last thing, is that this was the first episode of Rough Draft we had to do uh, with the social distancing rules, and so the sound might be a little bit different. But, you know, what better way to do a social distancing episode of Rough Draft than to have that be about a global plague that wipes out most of humanity? Anyway, (laughs) without further ado, here is our conversation with... Author, novelist, journalist, playwright, screenwriter, Lawrence Wright.
2: How you doing, Larry? I'm hot. It's 106 outside. So yes. Uh, it's,
0: You're in Texas.
2: I'm doing fine. I'm in Austin, Texas.
0: You're in Austin, Texas. When was the last time you left your house? You've been sheltering in place for a while?
2: I had a doctor appointment yesterday, and I actually got the car washed in order to go because I wanted to make an occasion. Uh, yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. I had this whole thing where whenever I go for my weekly grocery run, I feel like a caveman, you know, going out to bring food. I come home. I'm like, I've brought meat. <laughs> I have brought vegetables. It's, and risk
2: your life. Yeah. I
0: risked food. my life. Uh, It is so good to have you here on the show. Thank you so much. So the new book is called The End of October. It's your second novel. It's a book about a global pandemic that sweeps across the globe. It kills uh, countless people. Um, it, it cripples the healthcare system, destroys global economies. Uh, it, it it becomes politicized. People start arguing about whether they should have to wear masks or not. Um, it gets dismissed as a flu. Uh, there's an incompetent. A president whose idiocy makes the pandemic much worse, an evangelical vice president who uh, becomes the person in charge of the pandemic response. So I guess basically the the first question that I have for you is, what happens to me in the future? (laughs) I'm getting
2: a lot of suggestions about what I should do uh, for my next book, like a book about a female president or how we cured climate change. And yeah, oh, I'm, so I'm getting a lot of that. Uh, and it's not, it's not prophecy, Reza, it's research. You know, all mm. I did was um, I went, I decided, you know, I'd write the novel about the pandemic and I, uh, I started reading up on it and talking to experts and, uh, you know, asking them, what would happen? You know, if, if something like the 1918 flu, uh, which killed between 50 and 100 million people, what if that happened now? Would we mm-hmm. be any better prepared than our ancestors? And so, the, you know, the novel is about that. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking the, 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 the there, there are things that are wildly coincidental. I, I totally admit. That sometimes when I pick up the newspaper, I feel like I'm reading the next chapter. <laughs> but, uh, but most of it just comes right out of, you know, the the public health yeah. playbook.
0: Yeah. No, you have said this before that uh, so much of it is, you know, it feels like prophecy. But in reality, it's just research. Right. Which actually worries me because I wonder if like if you're talking to people who could have predicted what we're about to deal with, or what we are dealing with, with such accuracy. Why aren't these people speaking to our government officials? But beyond that, you're one thing that I really do know about you is that you have this kind of legendary um, research style, right, where you just delve headfirst into, um, you know, the, whatever topic it is that that you're writing about. And of course, you start you add that with the kind of the fictional world building, which is, is itself very immersive and all consuming. And I wonder if there are nights where you just uh, are up all night imagining like all the worst case scenarios <laughs> based on not just, you know, the reality that we're facing now, but the, the fictional world building that you've created. I I personally would never be able to sleep. Yeah,
2: I, I, It's hard for me to say this, Reza, but this was actually fun. Uh, I, I know that it's bleak. Uh, the research was great fun. I, I just mm. love talking to these, uh, geniuses, uh, in public health. A lot of them are the ones that are on the front line right now, creating a vaccine. Uh, the very ones, you know, uh, mm. and, uh, and they had, <laughs> and I, you know, I got to go to a sub base in Georgia and, uh, tour a nuclear submarine. I mean, these are Cherished
0: memories. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool.
2: <laughs> and uh, also, I, you know, when you let your mind open to imagine what might happen, uh, I mean, for a journalist, your normal assignment is what did happen.
0: Hmm.
2: It's not that big a change to then go, well, what might happen if, <laughs> if this happens? And uh, so that's uh, – and then your mind is – set loose in a way um you know my my constrictions are that you have to it has to be plausible it has mm-hmm. to be real it could have to it has to really be able to happen and outside of that you know i'm uh, i'm free to roam and sometimes i look at it, and it what i thought up and i'm a little scared myself <laughs> That's just, it, there are some um, you know harrowing moments in the book and uh You know, I don't know where they they come from, but I'm sure that's true of any imaginative writer.
0: Well, I'm curious, what did you get wrong? Like, in other words, if you were to, you know, you wrote this obviously long before um, the coronavirus, but um, I wonder if you were to sit down now and say, okay, I'm going to write a novel about a global pandemic. What would be different this time?
2: There were a couple of things that I didn't anticipate. Uh one was the uh sacrifice that ordinary people were willing to make to isolate themselves in their homes uh at great personal cost and financial, spiritual, emotional, you know, and in their health too, putting it at risk. Uh, I I really admired the way people endured mm-hmm. the isolation my novel sort of starts now when, when the fray, you know people have gotten frayed and uh, they no longer want to stay indoors and there's a feeling of mutiny, um, and I think that would have come a lot earlier if. As in my novel, I postulated the food chain broke down and the ATMs no longer had cash. And you 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 take a few of the things out of the equation that we're in now, and I think you get a lot more despair and all this becomes a lot more frightening.
0: And I imagine you've got your bunker all all good to go now, right? (laughs) I
2: did (laughs) order a mask early
0: on. That was very smart. Very smart. Yeah, um, I'm gonna. We're gonna talk a lot more about the book and about writing and and all that stuff. But uh, first of all, I want to say uh, thank you again. I got my quarantini here. Yeah, Me my, too. Yes. Mm, mine. Yes, you, so yours has got an olive. Mine's got a, a lemon. But cheers. These are very <laughs> personal decisions
2: that you have to make about
0: a martini. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about uh, growing up here. You grew up in Texas, right? I was born in Oklahoma, but mostly raised in Abilene and Dallas. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I read someplace that uh, you were actually in Dallas when Kennedy was shot. Is that true? Yeah, I was in I was in eighth grade, uh-huh. and uh, a lot of my friends went
2: down to the parade. Uh, my dad was uh, waiting uh, at this uh, convention center for Kennedy to arrive for lunch. Yeah, it was, it was a. It, very formative moment for me. Um, for one thing, there was a rumor that uh, school children in Dallas had laughed when they heard the news. And I wondered if I had laughed. I mean, I remember an exhalation of disbelief when the principal came on the PA. And, you know, we all kind of looked around at each other. And, uh, but after that, being from Dallas was, you know, it was, it was a terrible stigma. Uh, I remember when I went to college. Years later, uh, operators sometimes wouldn't place my calls to Dallas. You're uh, kidding. One time we were in Mexico, family of five. You know, I had two younger sisters, and uh, we were sitting at a restaurant, and there was a cup an American couple, next in the table next door, and and uh, they heard us talking, and what the husband said, "Where are you guys from?" And my father said, "Dallas," and they just got up and left their food. Uh, you know, we had. Incidences like that. Everybody from
0: Dallas experienced things like that. I, I've never, I've never heard this before. Like, I mean, I, I, all the stories that I've heard about the Kennedy assassination and you know everything that that comes around it. I, this is the first time that I've heard that there was like you know g- genuine prejudice against people from Dallas. Oh
2: yeah, it was, it was, it it really burned. Uh, one time we were driving to Florida and we stopped in Georgia for gas and uh, the station attendant stuck his head in the car window and looked around at us. And, you know, we're, you know, three kids in the back seat, you know, and he said, y'all killed the president (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because we had Dallas, we had Texas plates on. Uh, It was, it was, it, it made an impression. And I think in some ways, uh, it led me into an interesting corridor of life. Um, I, I went back to Dallas after the 50th anniversary and, uh, made a speech. And I said, if, if the assassination had to happen anywhere, I'm glad it happened in Dallas. Hmm. The, the city was going off the rails politically. Uh, and it, it was, it was nutsville. And, uh, You know, there were a lot of threats against Kennedy. Adlai Stevenson was uh, assaulted when he came to speak. And, you know, the city was totally out of control and so full of itself. And then the assassination came along and Dallas was taken down like no city. I mean, all the places where, you know, Los Angeles, where RFK was killed. And, you know, you think about New York where John Lennon was killed. No, no city was held responsible and, uh, you know, it was this Dallas killed Kennedy and Dallas didn't kill Kennedy, uh, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was a, a, a communist. I didn't know we had Democrats, you know, but the idea that there was a communist <laughs> in Dallas was very surprising to me. Uh, but, you know, it was a hmm. it was a formative moment in in the history of the city. And I think it made a better city out of Dallas uh, it's a far more tolerant place than it was back then.
0: It, it occurs to me as you're talking, there's something really interesting that, that, I mean, obviously I wasn't born cause I'm, I'm in my, you know, mid twenties, as you know, um, that was a, the first time I would say, uh, certainly you know in in the the latter half of the 20th century let's say um, in which the very sort of foundations of the American system right that the pillars that hold this thing together are um, were, seemed suddenly shaky, right? You know, uh, a, a president was shot in the middle of the day, out and open. What was going to happen next? Um, uh, you know, this isn't Taft dying, right? This is, this happened in front of the, the eyes of the world. And it must have created uh, an enormous amount of uh, destabilization and fear. People must have felt incredibly unmoored, We've now had numerous experiences like that, 9-11, which you've written about, (laughs) this global pandemic, which you've written about. Is it possible that that childhood experience kind of gave you this kind of kernel, if you will, of interest in what it means to live in a moment in which uh, society and the things that we think that we can rely on and trust suddenly uh, aren't there anymore?
2: I'm sure that that's true, Reza. It, it was a turning point in my life in many respects. And, you know, one of the things about growing up in Dallas at that time, and I'm sure it's true of many other places, there was no literature about the city. You know, had I grown up in Brooklyn or God knows Paris, you know, someplace where, you know, it had this deep history of, of observation, of you know, writers who are explaining the culture and taking it on and enlarging the culture and the process. Dallas really didn't have a literature. And mm-hmm. uh you know, it was twenty years after the assassination that I decided I would write about it. Uh, and for a lot of my Dallas friends that was a really important thing because you know they hadn't been noticed. And the 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 things that I described to you the the experiences and the feelings that everybody had in the city, nobody had really taken the time to record them and reflect on them. And so I was glad that I had that opportunity, but it certainly, it, it made me aware. I don't like to use the word evil because it's a kind of three theological term, but it did awaken my curiosity to the dark side of human nature. And, you know, I've always found myself drawn into those eddies uh, to see where people come from when uh, they do something extraordinary and sometimes extraordinarily awful. uh, Mm -hmm. And I want to understand them. And I think maybe that, you know, it was that need to understand what had happened to us that motivated me and the rest of my career.
0: Another thing about growing up in Dallas and Texas um, in general that you've talked about is the fact that you grew up, you know, with a lot of prejudices and biases that yeah. you had to actually confront and struggle and try to shed. Can you talk a little bit about what that was, what, what, what sort of specific um, issues you felt like you needed to confront about yourself as you became older and more aware of the world?
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about it a lot these days, about young Larry Wright and, you know, what a, how naive and, and prejudiced in so many ways I was as a, as a young man. Hmm. I didn't know, except for our maid who came once a week, I didn't know any black people. Uh, I, you know, Brown versus Board of Education came out in 1954. And I graduated from high school in 1969, never having had a black classmate uh-huh. um, and gay people were, you know, i had no idea what that meant. You know, I wasn't even sure, you know, exactly. I mean, I I know it sounds bizarre no. to, to admit, but I really didn't understand what homosexual was in a in a in a in a total way. Uh my mother's hairdresser was totally gay. And, uh, and my mother, uh, you know, I I began to catch on in high school, you know, uh, uh, and she loved Liberace, you know, and (laughs) that's a dead giveaway. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I, my, my sisters and I were sort of kidding about it because mother totally adored him. And, um, uh, so, you know, that, in that sense, I began to awaken to the idea that there was another culture and that there was something to offer there. Uh, and, but, you know, back in the day in high school, uh, people would talk about rolling queers in, in Lee Park. Now, that, those two words, Lee Park and, and also queers, I suppose, you know, those are, that's of an era. Uh, and uh, and I didn't know, I, you know, the idea was that there were these weak people who were sitting around in this park looking for a date and you could go beat them up. Well, that's <laughs> the was, I wasn't gonna do that, but people mm-hmm. talked about it all the time. Openly, park, book. you know, they just took down the Lee in Lee Park, the statue, and uh you know, I'm so happy that so many of these things have been changed. Uh, you know, there's, I think that a lot of what we're going through right now is a, a recognition of uh, the faults of history that we need to attend. And I'm, for the most part, uh, in favor of it. Um, it's, but, you know, I, I had a, a date once with a girl who was Filipino and the fact that she wasn't thoroughly white was uh, unsettling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, it was it was a, it was hard to break out of, given the confinement of the culture that was an entirely white culture that I lived in. Uh, no acknowledged homosexuals at all, and uh, you know, it was like everything about people that were different from you was all hearsay. You didn't have any personal experience with it. It wasn't until I went off to college that um, that I began to have, a, you know, my eyes began to open to a wider world.
0: Right. You know, I wonder if now that we are in this moment of racial reckoning, at least I hope we are in this moment of racial reckoning, um, at least in a moment in which we can't ignore it any longer, is there a lesson, perhaps, in your experience um, as a privileged white man, (laughs) um, that others can learn about how to overcome those prejudices and how to understand um, movements like Black Lives Matter. how to, how to reconcile your um, biases, your internal prejudices, the things that you grew up with. Like you say, you grew up in a very small sheltered place. You didn't know anybody who didn't look like you. Um, are, is there something that, that people of your generation can learn from your experience, a lesson that perhaps you can give them to help them with what is a, a fairly um, seismic Transition that we're going through as a society in the United States. I don't know,
2: Reza. It seems to me that young people have a different, ex- you know, background of experience. They're so much more exposed to people of different cultures and faiths and all that than I was. Uh, and I don't know. I'm sure there are communities that are as culturally isolated as the one I grew up in, but I don't know of them. You know, they'd have to mm. be small towns somewhere.
0: No, but I mean people of your generation now who who grew, who had a similar background that you have and are now confronting like you yourself did a, a world that looks nothing like the world in which they grew up in i don 't know i Reza in some ways uh,
2: you know I think one thing that I feel like we should give credit to America for making those changes you know mm-hmm. i as a young reporter i was um, My first job was at the Race Relations Reporter in Nashville, which was an interesting job for a person as provincial as I was. (laughs) And um, so I got to cover the end of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And it was a deeply moving experience. And um, one of the things that impressed me with all the struggle and the violence that went on during that period of time America made a change, and it was a radical social change that very few cultures that I can think of would willingly have undergone. Uh, we profoundly made a difference in our laws and our society, and it's still working itself through. Uh, but I saw it before those changes happened, and it was you know, in, in many ways, I think the history of America is best told through, you know, the history of the evolution of our racial relations. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an unfinished project. But, you know, and I understand the impatience of, of black and, and other people of cold color right now to move it further down the road. But I come from a long perspective of seeing where it started. And, and also taking soundings in my own heart uh, and seeing how I've changed over that period of time.
0: It's interesting. I, I talk about this a lot, that people tend to think that bigotry is the result of ignorance. You hear this all the time, that, you know, well, if you don't, if you're bigoted towards black people or gay people or, you know, Middle Easterners or whatever, it's just because you don't know any better. But you and I know a lot of very intelligent very well-informed bigots. Um, and I think what I always try to remind people is that bigotry is not actually the result of ignorance. It's the result of fear, that it's a it's a phobia. And fear, as any parent will tell you, is impervious to data. It's impervious to information, right? No matter how many times I tell my five-year-old that there's nothing under his bed, no matter how many times we, we crawl down there to see that there's nothing under the bed, he still is afraid that there's something under the bed, and so really, when you think about it, like the only way that you can overcome fear, legitimately overcome fear, um, is through relationships. It's it's through knowing some someone, you know. It, it, and so maybe in in a way, what we are, this reckoning that we're that we're experiencing now has to do with the simple fact that it's becoming harder and harder for people to grow up the way that you grew up, right? Yeah. It's becoming much more yeah, difficult. Thank goodness for that. Thank goodness, yeah. But yeah. I
2: think another thing that is beyond the try to, you know, create relationships in order to overcome fear, I think people need to feel secure. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of what's going on in the white backlash is the sense of insecurity uh, that a, a lot of white people feel, that, the, you know, they're they're – they're dropping out of the social network. And, uh, you know, I think the opioid crisis is a very uh, Mm -hmm. obvious indication of despair and uh, hopelessness and and, and an absence of security. Um, So, and I'm sure that works its way in other communities as well. Uh, It it makes it harder to feel uh, compassion for the other when Mm -hmm. you're feeling
0: threatened yourself. Yeah. So, okay, so you went off to college. You realized that the world is bigger than Dallas. <laughs> um, uh, wh- why writing? How did that happen? When did, you, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Uh, I guess there are two answers to that question. One is that in
2: high school, in my senior English class taught by Elizabeth Enloe,
0: um I, by the way, I love name-checking high school English teachers. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, okay, I, I, Janice
0: Riggs yeah. changed my life.
2: Uh, it, it happens like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ms. Inlow uh, on Fridays would give us an assignment to write a, a short story using three words. You know, that the, everybody in the class came up with, these three words have to be in your story. And it was like a puzzle. But at the same time, there were only three words and you had to come up with a story and and there was only one other student in the class who really took it seriously. Johnny Pender. He became a pharmacist in Fort Worth, but he was a pretty good short story writer. And so Johnny and I would kind of contend with each other. And I I thought I'm pretty good at this. I may not be as good as Johnny, but I you know I feel like this is something that um, that I might be able to do. I think the other thing that influences people's career choices is the kind of clothes you get to wear. And (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it certainly plays out in sports, doesn't it? You mean the, the outfits that I've often thought about being a mountain climber because you get to go in those Spider-Man clothes, but.
0: This is so true. But This is so, by the way, I always tell people, I always know that I've had a successful writing day when I go to sleep in the clothes that I woke up in that morning.
2: Yes, well, you've really worked hard that day. <laughs> no,
0: that's a good day
2: writing right there. So, you know, I it was a stylistic choice is what I'm suggesting. And I had the idea that I was a writer long before I actually wrote anything. And uh, I, I had a fantasy about being a, a poet in Soho. And I had no idea what the rents were in Soho. And the truth is I don't even read poetry. So I don't know what I was just, it was, it was an idea.
0: Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and then
2: when I, it's also a great
0: way to pick up ladies, by the way, it's just a, I'm Does a poet in Soho. I, mean,
2: I never got that far,
0: <laughs> but uh, I,
2: I found that, um, you know, when I got, Back, I was living in Egypt for a couple of years and came back to get uh, a job. And I wanted to get a job as, you know, writing. But nobody's going to pay me to write poetry. And, you know, I'd, I'd never written a novel or anything. Nobody, people won't pay you to write things. That's <laughs> weird, right? <laughs> There's some reason, you know, and this was a shock. And so that's how I moved into journalism. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can assemble information that people will pay for And uh, I didn't want to be a journalist. But in many ways, I'm really glad that I was forced into that as a way of having a Mm -hmm. writing career.
0: Yeah. You talked about George Orwell being a huge influence. Oh my god. Um, He's, you know. Tell me, tell me, what you you, you call him your guiding star. Uh, I mean, I love Orwell. I know a lot of people love Orwell. I've never met anyone who's like, Orwell is my dude. That's my jam.
2: Well, uh, you probably have books you sometimes pick up when you're feeling a little stuck or something, you know? Sure. Uh, for me, um, Orwell gets my motor running, and uh, it's the total concision and clarity of his language that is so inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. And I find, you know, even if you're, you know, if you're writing, and you want to have more of a flourish you know more you want your prose to be uh, pumped up a little bit more yeah yeah a lot of that is just air and uh and and i find that the thing about orwell is that he he achieves beauty through clarity and it's not fancy but it is solid and uh, and I, guess I aspired to, and that's why Hemingway, I think, also affected me. There's a similarity in in the in the purity of their language.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting when I think about your work, not just your journalism uh, or your nonfiction, but your fiction, your um, you know your screenplays. If I were to say that 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 you know what's the overwhelming theme. Of the stuff that you write with, a lot of it has to do with belief, religious belief, and the way that those beliefs animate personal action, the way that they create um, political conflict. You've written about uh, the Jonestown Massacre, you've written about um, Satan worshipers, you've written obviously about Al Qaeda, you've written uh, very successfully about Scientology. Um, wh- what is that about? What is that interest? Uh, from? I mean, is it, did you grow up religious? Have you always been fascinated with religion and belief? Well, we have this in common, obviously,
2: Reza. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was a pious teenager. And, Tell me uh, about that. Well, there was an organization called Young Life. and uh, <laughs> Young Life, yeah. I was uh, not a very popular kid in high school, and Young Life gave me uh, a, a community, Um and uh and i had standing there uh the uh, as as almost any religion will you know as long as you pledge your belief you are in the club and the the thing i learned about religion in in, from my experience in young life is that piety gets you ahead and uh, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that's dangerous about religion because you know it's exclusive you know the more you believe the 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 more you become an enforcer of the of the belief and the more trusted you become uh and maybe at some level in different organizations f- frightening uh because of your belief um and it works that way in in political cults as well but mm-hmm. it was also it was sexy uh our we had these two leaders um
0: they're like five years older than you
2: yeah right i mean
0: this is the thing for people who don't know what young life is just to be clear so young life is an organization it started i guess in the 60s right um Oh, no. Uh and it, it was part of the the kind of Jesus is just all right by me uh movement. And it was an attempt to uh evangelize to young people, primarily high school uh kids, by making um Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, fun and exciting. And you would get together at people's houses and you'd sing songs and you'd go on camping trips yeah. and you'd I mean it 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 was fun, it was a lot of fun, and it was sexy like there is there is a sexiness to it i mean most of my <laughs> very lame <laughs> love life in high school um, revolved around young life you know oh, you um, too? oh, oh yeah dude i had no oh. idea <laughs> well i was a crazy. young life leader for a while afterwards i i took i, t- I take shit very seriously if i'm going to uh, do something i'm going to well, do the it in our our
2: group uh, the 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 husband had played in the Rose bowl and he was this really hunky, I mean, hunky one time, somebody said, as he walked in the room, Hey, flex your muscles, Roy. And he did. And everybody just went dead quiet. You know, it was, <laughs> And then his, <laughs> his wife had been an airline stewardess back in the days that you call them stewardesses. And they were, you know, back in the day where there was a beauty quotient and she mm-hmm. was so sexy. And uh, so it added this, intrigue yeah. You know, and, uh, uh, in that environment um, I prospered socially and um, but then I went off to college and got you know broke free of the the moment and mm-hmm. a lot of the it's the context that uh, a lot of times religion carries that uh, draws you in it, the thing about so many religions it, when you ask them about we ask people who are in a community of religion, what do you believe? They start by saying, "We believe." Right. They don't say I believe. They say we believe, and it's a pledge of allegiance to a community, and that's true of the Amish, and you know, and the Methodists, and and even the Scientologists. You know, it's all mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, it, pledging allegiance to a system of belief is a way of getting into the community. And, uh, you know, and some of those communities are beautiful. The Amish, you know, it's a really extraordinary. I wrote a, my first book about the Amish um, and I wrote about the Mormons. Those are both extraordinary communities in terms of their success at achieving what they want. And mm-hmm. uh, even though you would look at their belief system perhaps and say, wow, <laughs> how'd you get to
0: that but um, i
2: think sometimes- but it's not even
0: it's not even all that important to them like it's it's interesting you say that because if you if you confront them with the quote-unquote things they believe it's not a it's not always no, about right. that Absolutely. it's not about doctrine or theology. they probably most of them don't even know it's all about the feeling of belonging it's all right. about that collective identity yeah you know the other thing that that, pe- that religious people have in common is that they tend to take their religion very seriously, and they do not like it when other people write critically about their religion, which you have <laughs> done about, you know, Mormons and Scientologists and Muslims, and uh, and I'm I, I wonder if you've ever had to deal with any kind of retaliation, you know, from the the subjects uh, that you write about uh, as a result of the things that you write. Yeah. Well, with Scientology,
2: there were uh, innumerable legal threats, just yeah, one after another. And, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting from a perspective of being a writer because um, you have to write very carefully. And, uh, for instance, in my, my book, Going Clear, about Scientology, there are very few adjectives and adverbs. Just in
0: case know,
2: just because I could imagine being on the stand and you know the, the attorney saying, you know, well you Mr. Wright, you say it was very crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you mean by very? I didn't I didn't want to defend the word very, so you right. know it. Um but with you know, the there have been uh threats from You know, with Jamal Khashoggi was a friend of
0: mine, and you know, I'm producing a a documentary now. Uh, This is the Washington Post um, journalist who was murdered and dismembered um, by the Saudis at the direct order of the the current Saudi Crown Prince. Right.
2: You know, I there have been some you know, attempts to, you know, get into my computer and stuff like that. Um, and uh, and they are after a friend of mine now. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, it, it, that's not really a religious thing, though. That's, you know, more of a, a, a power thing. I don't think mm-hmm. of MBS as being, a, you know, a, a religious extremist. I just think he's a... a An autocratic uh, murderer.
0: Yeah. I, I would use the word asshole, but that's fine. Hey there, everyone. It's Reza. I'm sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this episode, well, then you're in luck, my friends, because Rough Draft is also a TV show, and you can watch it all right now along with Topic's other original series and exclusive programming from around the world. You can check it out for free on the Apple TV app, which is already on your favorite devices. With Apple TV, you can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing. And you can even share your subscription with up to six family members with family sharing, which is what I do because I have a gigantic family. Go to apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. That's apple.co slash topic.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
0: So we both we both have had uh, interesting run ins, obviously, with the Church of Scientology. You wrote a fantastic book, Going Clear, um, about the church, about the history of the church um, and L. Ron Hubbard. I I did uh, an episode of um, my show, Believer, which, by the way, happens to be on topic now for fans. A little self plug there. uh, on uh, the the fringe Scientology movements, right? The sort of the 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 uh, what I call the Protestant movements within <laughs> Scientology, the Free Zoners and and people like that. Um, and I I wonder if everyone who has ever dealt with the Church of Scientology has had a a humorous interaction with them. Sometimes not so humorous, by the way. Uh, I wonder if if we could maybe swap stories. Let's swap Church of Scientology stories. I'm going to assume that mine's worse than yours, so I'll start. All right, go ahead. So, uh, I tried, when we did our Scientology episode, I tried for a very long time to get the church involved because I thought like, well, I mean, I'm not here. I'm, I'm a religion guy. I'm not going to make fun of you guys. You know, I just want to I just wanna learn about it. And I tried very hard for months and months and months, had tons of meetings with members of the church and hierarchy and people just kept, you know, getting strung along. And eventually we did the episode anyway. And once the episode was in the can... And about to uh, premiere, that's when the church finally got in touch with me. And they said, you know, come on in and we want to talk to you about this episode. And we want to actually now um, take part, which was a little too late anyway. But I thought, well, okay, this will be fun. Let's go and find out. So uh, I sat down. They said, look, a lot of the video that you've, you've done is incorrect. And we would like to offer you... Um, our own video that you can use for for free, and I thought, well, that's great. I'd love to use church, you know, material for free. <clears throat> then they turned on the video, and it was forty five minutes of uh, stock footage of Scientology centers around the world just opening, no narration nothing else, just one after another. It was like Tel Aviv. And then you would see the outside and then you would see, you would go through the door and there would be the the counter and the person waiting and you would see the beautiful rooms. And then it would be like uh, Johannesburg. And then it would be the same story. <laughs> this went on for 45 minutes. And then when it was over, they said, you can have all of this. <laughs> I thought, okay, wow. That's, thank you. But no. Um, by the way, the other fun fun thing that the 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 Church of Scientology did was they um, they invented an entirely brand new online journal, an online magazine, um, and it, they scrubbed it of any kind of notice that it belonged to the church at all. But uh, right before the episode premiered, they uh, populated this fake j- online journal with a bunch of articles uh basically all about me and and the show which i thought like i honestly was Flattered, I was so (laughs) genuinely flattered that this much work and attention had gone (laughs) to to making me look bad, you know, because of this forty-five minute episode that that I had. uh, That I, I, it was like one of the highlights of my of my career, basically. That that's my Church of Scientology story.
2: Well, mine's very similar in many ways. uh, As for the uh, slanderous um, magazine, since I was working for a magazine, the New Yorker, uh, they printed up a mock new yorker with you, you know every every february the new yorker's anniversary issue has this uh gentleman eustace tilly is his name who has the monocle and looking at the butterfly you know this is you know and so it was me with um you know this top hat with one of my sources popping out of it and stuff like that and uh they passed it out all over Times square but um they came to – the. I, I had the same experience of being put off and put off. But then as we were going into the process of publishing, and um, it was clear that we were going to publish no matter what, uh, they decided that they were going to come to New York and uh, have a, 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 a face-to-face. And um, so uh, we met in a conference room. It was me, and we had – bear in mind, New Yorker is very careful on his fact-checking. It's kind of famous for that. Yes. Uh, There had been one fact-checker on this story for six months, and by the time we finished, we had five other checkers on the story and the head of the fact-checking. It was the most carefully (laughs) checked article in the history of the New Yorker, which is a pretty long history. And so we had one – We had two checkers and the head of the fact-checking and our lawyer and my editor and and David Remnick, who came in to say, welcome, everybody, and then sat down and stayed for eight hours. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) he didn't intend to, but it was so wild. And on the other side of the bench, we had um, two Scientology spokespeople, Tommy Lord, I don't know if that's who you dealt with, and his wife, Jessica who were the international spokespeople for the church. And along with them were uh, four attorneys. You know, and mm-hmm. one of them had been a, a, a US district attorney. I mean, these were high-powered figures. And they brought along with them 47 white binders uh, that were meant to answer our 940 <laughs> <email>, uh, fact check <laughs> emails. And because um, they hadn't paid any attention to them, but exactly, <laughs> they ignored them for a year. So the idea was, you know, we're going to overwhelm you with information. And I looked at that like a cat looking at a big feast. You know, I mean, it just—I uh, that they had brought all this stuff in, and ostensibly they were going to drown me in information. And uh, you can't drown a reporter in information. I mean, that's like pouring water on a fish. So uh, when we finally had a break, David Remnick uh, pulled me aside and he said, you know what you got here, you schmuck? You got a book. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They just gave it to me. Let's,
0: let's, uh, let's get, move, move on here. And I wanna talk a little bit about craft and, and your, your craft, obviously. You've written a ton of different books, 10 books, I think, at this point, something like that, uh, three screenplays. You have two one-man shows. You're a journalist. You're still a staff writer on The on the New Yorker, still writing articles in there. So you really just run the gamut when it comes to the different um, genres um, that, that you write in. And particularly when it comes to this book, The End of October, your second novel, I, I, I wonder... Now that you've had a couple of experiences, you know writing fiction like this, what to you is fundamentally the difference between those two genres, fiction and nonfiction? And let's throw drama in there. i mean you've you've written drama as, as well, screenplays um certainly and uh, and and one man um shows, as I said. But in terms of craft, I wonder, are there different parts of the brain involved? in working in either fiction or nonfiction or screenwriting? Um, do you, do you approach it differently? Uh, is it, do, do you, do you sense a real kind of divide between those different genres or is it all just writing to you? I mean, my, I remember my, my writing teacher once said to me, and I've never, ever forgotten this, that there's really only two genres of writing. There's good writing and there's bad writing. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I,
2: In some ways, you know, I I observe very strict boundaries between fiction and nonfiction. But I'm drawn to reality. You know, I want to know what would really happen. And this is true if it's uh, a novel or a screenplay or a movie or, you know, whatever. I like having the sense that this is the way things would really go down. Uh, You know, take the example of I wrote a play about the making of the movie Cleopatra called Cleo and uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor are the main and Rex Harrison is a villain. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun with this and uh, but I wanted to know what actually happened and so I read all their biographies. I uh, when I started it, uh, the press agent was still alive and uh, interviewed him. Uh, Joseph Mankiewicz's son uh, Tom was still alive and I interviewed him and uh, he was the director and uh, so I had a really good time assembling all of the facts that I could and as much dialogue as I could r- arrange. And I think of, you know, writing something like that is like each of the facts and each of the words that I assembled, it becomes a, a kind of rock that you can put in a creek that you're trying to cross. And you don't know the whole story. But you know you have to get from this rock to that rock, and you fill it in with your imagination. And in some ways, that's the way that I write mm-hmm. fiction. Uh, you know it's built on real things, and uh, but you have to, in order to make the imaginative leap, you have to see your what your destination is and then try to uh, uh, try to imagine what would help you get to that point.
0: Well, I wonder on that note then do you feel like you can be more yourself in your fiction than in your nonfiction? I mean, you obviously, I mean, look, your nonfiction, besides the fact that you deal with very, you know, uh, big themes and topics and often with, as we already mentioned, (laughs) with uh, subjects that can be, you know, very difficult to navigate around. So you, you really have to be careful, you know, what you say and the way that you can use your imagination. Am I, Am I getting more of you, Larry, of like who you really are in your fiction than I am in your nonfiction? I guess it depends,
2: Reza. You know, there's i I've written a couple of memoirs. Uh, one was about growing up in Dallas during the Kennedy assassination, and that was very personal. And uh, and then recently, I wrote a book called "God Save Texas," which is a kind of memoir, but also uh, uh, you know, it's also reported. Uh, and it's a travelogue, and, you know, I mean, it's a melange of styles. I don't think I could have written it as a young writer, but it's very personal. But on the other hand, your observation is an accurate one that when when I'm writing fiction, uh, it comes from a place that's totally intimate, you know, and the material that I have, that I can use for invention is the parts of my life that I know about. And so the, in many ways, the book is full of secrets uh, because there are things in there that come directly from my experience or my heart. And, uh, and, you know, that's what I have to draw upon. And it represents Mm -hmm. me in a different way than, uh, than my memoir or something like that. But it is true that it's a reflection of
0: my core. You would, you'd use this um, phrase once before about, like, finding a donkey character, right? Can you yeah. tell us what you mean by that? What do, you, what do you mean when you say that you need a donkey character? I love this. I love this idea, by the way. You know, a lot of times magazine writers
2: write what they call profiles, and they are about um, famous or glamorous people. A donkey is not that. A donkey is someone who uh, a donkey is a beast of burden uh, he can carry a lot of information on his back he can take the reader into a world that he's never been in before and it helps if the donkey is in trouble I know it sounds like I'm disparaging uh, but really i th- I admire the donkey and uh, when i And trying to tell a story, I want a central figure who can satisfy those desires of mine Mm -hmm. to to get a a figure that, I, you know, you can unload a lot of information on a reader. It matters a lot more if it affects the life of someone the reader cares about. And that's what I hope a donkey will do. And, uh, you know, in, in The Looming Tower, you know, I it was John O'Neill, the first donkey that I found who was the head of the FBI counterterrorism force in New York and had the warrant on, on bin Laden. And, um, he died on nine eleven. Yeah. Uh, but he was a, he was a very significant figure and he could take the reader into the world of counterterrorism and tell us why it failed. Um, so that's the kind of thing I mean when I'm you know, with, with Scientology, it was Paul Haggis, mm-hmm. who um, had been in uh, Scientology for n- nearly 30 years. He was an uh, Academy Award-winning screenwriter and director. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you've found with the, your experience with Scientology, people look at Scientology with a sneer on their face. They think, oh, yeah, oh, I would never believe that kind of thing. And yet, you know, somebody like Paul Haggis is smart, he's uh, skeptical, uh, he's, you know, he's, he, he's got street smarts, and um, it's challenging for the reader. And I wanted somebody like that, a donkey, who uh, would place readers in an uncomfortable place and make them feel like that could happen to
0: me. Yeah. And also, it allows for scene work, right? I mean, uh, if if you're not writing scenes, then you're, you're, it, it becomes very difficult for, I think, the reader to truly get involved and get emotionally um, invested in the characters. I mean, even though, regardless whether the characters are real people or not, right?
2: I'm glad you brought that word up, scenes. Uh, you know, people observe a difference between... Screenwriting and playwriting and novels on the one hand, and nonfiction on the other, and they're all forms of storytelling. And in in plays and screenplays, for instance, there is no narrative; it's only scenes and characters, and those are very powerful elements mm-hmm. in storytelling. But too often, ill used in nonfiction, and. Uh, and so I, 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 since I write in all these different forms, I ported that into my nonfiction, and then into my screenplays and plays and novels, I, I imported my uh, research abilities. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that they uh, cross pollinate in in many respects.
0: I'd mentioned uh, a little bit earlier about your <laughs> legendary uh, research. Uh, process that you go through, um, right? That you're kind of, you put together like this whole organi- organized system of legal pads and index cards. Um, I read somewhere that just for Looming Tower alone, um, that the, your Pulitzer Prize winning book on um, the events that led up to 9-11, you conducted something like 600 plus interviews. You had 15 boxes of note cards. One of our producers, Safa, uh, is as anal retentive as you are. And she actually did the math and she she figured out that that comes up to something like twenty one thousand individual note cards that you had like four thousand pages of handwritten notes, um, and I get it. I mean, like you were saying earlier, I get you know the importance, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, which is the the importance of of being so absolutely familiar with the story and the people involved that it just becomes second nature to you. Yeah. But I wonder, do you ever just get to the point where you feel like you're drowning in information is it is there is there a thing is too much research too much information when you're writing with either fiction or nonfiction.
2: the the trick is to try to find your way through the the mass of information and that's where note cards come into play um if you could see me you would see on this hand i've got a new Box of note cards. (laughs) I'm starting a, 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 let's see, how do I get into this? Uh, A new art. I see it. it. And uh, I've got my (laughs) my legal pads, you know, with the, uh, yeah. It's old school. I, you know, real old school. But um, when I'm reading right now, I'm writing about COVID and uh, it's challenging, uh, you know, and, and also, there's so much to say and um, so I as I read I put things on note cards because my memory is not that great anyway and as I put things on note cards you have to you know the thing is you have to sort them out you have to categorize them you don't put everything on a note card you only put the things that occur to you that's important or that's interesting to me so you make note cards And then you have to classify them in in a way to find them again. That is essentially the first step in outlining because already you've decided these are the elements that are going to be a part of my story. And then the next thing you want to do is arrange them in some sort of stylish way. And so the outline really comes from the note cards. Hmm. And, you know, it's I've preached this for years and nobody has ever taken me up on it because it's front-end heavy. You know, you know, you do a lot of work before you start writing. My feeling is that it speeds up the writing process. When you actually get to the writing, you're not stumped for looking for it. I remember as a young reporter, I could sometimes get stopped for two days looking for a quote that I'm sure I had somewhere, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> right. And But, I, you know, with the note cards, you just pick up, you know, here I'm reaching over here to, you know, my section on China and I pick up these note cards and it tells me, uh, you know, about the Chinese doctor who um, who uh, uh, let the news out about uh, the new virus. You know, I have yeah. all stuff about him in here and then died of COVID himself. Yeah. Right. When I get to that point, I've got all that information right at hand. I think uh, this is just my guess. That. The that it gives speed and authority to the writing because you are able to move through it more quickly, and I think that it might communicate a sense of momentum to the reader. Yeah,
0: let's talk about themes for a minute. We kind of touched on this a a little bit earlier when we were talking about your childhood in Dallas. And certainly, that is the case uh, when it comes to the end of October. And also, your your brilliant screenplay for The Siege, a great movie um, that came out <laughs> before 9-11. Again, weird how you keep doing that. Um, but, you know, this idea of the fragility of civilization, right, um, the fragility of uh, the system that keeps us going, particularly, you know, uh, this notion of American democracy. You and I have talked about this a little bit before. That, you know, a lot of Americans tend to say with supreme confidence that this system that we have is permanent. It's eternal. You know, we've we've existed for two hundred and fifty years. That's pretty much forever, as far as you know. Most Americans are concerned. And there is this sense that nothing can, can bring it down, that yes, we could have a you know narcissistic sociopath as the president, but it's okay because the system it, it will, will make up for it, that, that um, the pillars of our society are stable and yep. sound. When you read the end of October, or when you watch a movie like The Siege, Um, you start to recognize very quickly how fundamentally false that assumption is, right? That uh, a a terror attack, a a pandemic has the ability of just crumbling the very foundations of our civilization. And we're in some ways kind of noticing that happening now a a little bit. I mean, we're not there yet, um, but... Everyone who thinks critically about what's going on with COVID recognizes that this is just the first of many global pandemics that we're going to be facing. I mean, we have a possibility of far worse coming up um, in our future. What do you think the role of the storyteller can be when confronting this reality, the, the, the true fragility of our of our system how do you how do you see yourself as a storyteller confronting that truth i think you know
2: i've i've had the advantage as a reporter of being in a lot of other cultures and seeing you know the what kind of societies have you know what societies have created up for themselves hmm and realizing sometimes when i get on the airplane i am so grateful for that passport i can leave i can i you know i whatever i've made of my life my country hasn't stood in the way of my advancement and so often i am in countries where i see young people whose futures are you know uncertain if if you know if foreclosed in many respects and you know i th- i th- think the society we have is so valuable and it's hard for people who haven't been out of the country for extended periods of time and lived in societies to understand how unusual what we have is i think of civilization being like a lake of ice civilization is the thin layer of ice that allows you to cross safely and uh and it's dangerous underneath but uh civilization protects you but it's hard to recognize when the ice has gotten thin and that when it becomes dangerous and i think for the storyteller in in especially in the case of uh, the end of october the goal here is to alert people that it's thinning out that we're in danger and that we have to take care of this. And it's our responsibility. Uh, you know, that's that was my goal in telling the story of the end of October. Yeah.
0: There's a, a, a line that the protagonist, the hero of the story, says at the end of the book where he says um, he had the foreboding that the ongoing war against disease would inevitably, inevitably be lost. Is, do you believe that? I think we are. We've gotten so
2: accommodated to the idea that disease is not a problem until recently, um, and you know, one of my sources was saying the other day that bacteria reproduces, you know, a new generation every twenty minutes, and humans every twenty years. So diseases have uh, an enormous advantage mm-hmm. over us. Uh, we're we're going to face more challenges. They may not all be pandemics, you know, wars and depressions, and, you know, there are a lot of different things that we're going to be facing. History isn't done with us, but neither is nature. And the assaults that we've made on nature that have resulted in the change in our climate, uh, these are the, the adventures that we're going to have as a civilization starting now and into the future and how we respond to that is going to determine what kind of
0: future we're going to have. I don't want to be so blasé as to ask you whether you're, you know, optimistic or pessimistic, because at this point, you know, who knows. But um, I was reading a New Yorker article, your latest New Yorker article, which was um, this interview that you were talking about this um, professor at the Institute of Medicine at Johns Hopkins, Gianna Pomada, I think is her yeah. name, yeah. Gianna Pomada. And she was talking about the Black Death. And, and one of the fascinating things about the Black Death, I suppose, when you study it in history, is that the way that she she talks about it is that it, it really marks the end of the Middle Ages, right? It's what comes after the Black uh, Death is the Renaissance, that, you know, it forces... People to rethink their their basic assumptions, to innovate, to modernize, and and next thing you know, you have this kind of massive leap in progress and civilization. Can we hope for something like that coming out of this global pandemic? Is that is that what you see on the other side of this? I
2: wrote that story because I I was trying to figure out what's on the other side. And, um, you know, my observation was that pandemics, you know, like a war or like the Kennedy assassination or, you know, like a Great Depression, they allow you – it's like an X-ray. It allows you to see through your society into all the broken places. And you have an opportunity to mend them. I mean, you can't deny anymore that you see them. They're plainly evident, and in the past, I think uh, the United States has done some wonderful things when challenged. Um, the uh, you know the Civil War brought an end to slavery. Uh, the 1918 was you know the the war in Europe and the and the Spanish influenza. What an amazing challenge that was, and it, yes, it did lead to change. You know that women's suffrage came along afterwards, but essentially, what happened afterwards was the Roaring Twenties and and this tremendous amount of income disparity that has only recently been touched. And um, then, you know, the Great Depression. We remade our society in the middle of it into a, a much more compassionate, just, and and progressive successful economy and society in the middle of one of the worst periods in our history. And in World War II, we became we, we the strongest economic uh, power in the history of the world. But then after 9-11, we invaded Iraq and started torturing people in Guantanamo. And in many respects, we're still living in that post-9-11 world. So our, our history as a society, when faced with these kinds of challenges, is mixed we've had great successes and we've had huge failures. If we make a tremendous mistake in the wake of uh, COVID-19, I think it will be sacrificing uh, parts of our democracy in order to achieve a, a more efficient autocratic government. Um, and there'd be a temptation to do that. Yeah. But, um, you know, basically I think it's up to us and we have, you know, tragedies come encased with opportunities, and we have the opportunity to make a huge change. The article is called Crossroads, and I think we really are at a crossroads, where the future of our country and the world, for that matter, is is on the table.
0: Yeah. Well, look, on that note, uh, let's transition to how we always end our episodes of Rough Draft, which is the five questions. Uh, these are questions that we ask all of our guests at the end of our interviews. Uh, it's rapid fire. Just kind of say the, the first thing that that comes to your mind. Um, and you can always, of course, follow up and explain why that is. So let's let's start. Here we go. The five questions. Question number one, what is your favorite book? That's a horrible question and you know it. I know it's Uh, the worst question. It's as mean as it can be.
2: And, um, and the only way I can think to answer it is that there was a book, the Earl of Louisiana by A.J. Liebling. Nobody. Yeah, I know. Uh, A.J. Liebling was a New Yorker writer and he wrote a, a, he went sent down to Louisiana to write about Earl Long, who was the governor. He's Huey Long's kid brother. And, um, I was in Tulane University in New Orleans, and I read that book. I the ability to bring a character to life, such vivid life, and to have so much fun with it, hmm. uh, made a huge impression on me. And I think it also set the hook for wanting to write for the New Yorker. So I would say that book is, in many ways, my favorite. I don't know if I read if I read it again now. I feel the same right. exhilaration that I did when I read it the first time, but it was, it's,
0: I'm sure it's still a wonderful book. The Earl of Louisiana. I can yeah. truly say I've never heard that book before, but I'm going to go pick it up. Yeah. It's fabulous. Well, we, we've talked about question number two a few times already. What is your writing process? Forget about the research and all the things that you do, but talk us through the actual process of writing. What's, what's a, what's the writing day like for you?
2: Well, today for instance, um, you know, I, I had a good start. I didn't have any other interviews or anything, so I was able to go through the whole day. Um, I had uh, printed up some uh, information that I wanted to fold into the story that I already written. I decided today was going to be a day of rewriting. Um, you know, I, I I like to push ahead as much as possible, but I always feel that if I'm if I gotten out on a limb and it's beginning to feel something like dead limb, um, <laughs> I have to go back and go back and, and firm it up a little bit before I have the nerve to go forward. So that was yeah. that I, I started about, I went for a walk this morning cause it's too hot to go any other time. Uh, so my wife and I went for a long walk and then I got started writing about 10 and, um, uh you know i had to go through a lot of uh information to put on note cards because every day mm-hmm. new information comes in and i want to make sure that i haven't missed anything right the timeline that i have a chronology that i keep at the same time so those two things i have to do first before i start writing and then i look back over what i've written and start to make start to mend the broken places mhm Writing is rewriting, as they say. I think it is. You know, it's, that's when you really start to feel that you are writing. You know, right. a lot of times you're just getting words on the page. It's, I think, the main obstacle to people who have otherwise, you know, got a lot of talent and so on, I think it's being able to live with the frustration. It's very frustrating. And, um, you know, you know, times that you're not writing well and so on, and you have to just push through them. I I think that's a huge obstacle. And it's maybe self-lacerating, but um, (laughs) you have to be able to get through that.
0: All right. Question number three, if you weren't a writer, what would you be?
2: You know, Reza, I when I was 38 and a half, I took up piano in order to play great balls of fire on my 40th birthday and (laughs) still taking lessons more than 40 you know it's 38 i guess 30 something years later uh, i'm still taking lessons and i'm in a band now but um although i hope we're still in a band after all this yeah right
0: uh, so musician
2: perhaps i would i would be a musician and and also i've been working on a musical Uh, with my son and with Marsha Ball, who's a great uh, piano player and songwriter and singer here in Austin. And uh, it's been, it's about Texas politics, which, of course, makes you want to burst into song. uh, (laughs) I have had more fun working on that than anything that I've ever done. So uh, that would be writing music, playing music, and I say also being in musical theater, I think those things would be very attractive to me.
0: Question number four, what is the worst writing advice that you have ever been given? I guess it's
2: I, – I, I, what comes to mind was right after 9-11, uh, on that day, uh, you know, I was in Austin – uh, but uh, David Remnick, the editor of the magazine, uh had a call uh, The phones were out until the afternoon, but he had a call with uh, a conference call with writers, and we were scattered all over the place hmm. you know, in the middle of our assignments and he wanted us to j- come up with stories uh, individual stories that he could meld into uh, an overall narrative and um, I, you know, I felt so marooned in Austin, but I found this young man. He was a reporter. His name was Kurt Yelson, and he was a reporter for a financial magazine. And uh, he had uh, an appointment at the top of the World Trade Center that morning. And he, for the first time in his life, slept through his subway stop and had to get on another subway going the other direction. He was running late, and he got to the World Trade Center, and at that, you know, the World Trade Center had a bank of escalators going up to the elevators. And he went up, he got on, a. there were like a 100 elevators. And he got on an elevator. And the elevator operator held the door for this woman who was walking across the lobby very slowly. And, and Kurt was upset and late. And just as he she stepped into the elevator. He noticed that she had a rose tattoo on her ankle. He had a like a photographic memory. And the plane hit. And the doors accordioned. And Kurt came out of the elevator. And he had no idea what was happening. Nobody knew what was happening. Was it an earthquake? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, he thought he was. He was disoriented and he saw outdoors there and he, he thought, but he'd forgotten he'd gone up that escalator. So he walked out on what was a terrace and there were hundreds of shoes lying around and what looked like luggage, but were human torsos. And his story, uh, I, would, I would talk to him and hand the tape to my wife who would transcribe it. And, you know, I was in tears a lot of the time talking to her. But his story of getting home to the Bronx was like this audacious, you know, uh, trying to, you know, walk through Manhattan. And an editor I had then told me, "That's enough. We got plenty." <laughs> and I thought, "This is this fool. You don't know what you're talking about." So I kept writing and kept interviewing him. And then the night before closing, uh, Remnick called me up and said, I want everything you can get from this guy. And Mm -hmm. I I knew he would call. And it was the bookend for the black issue of The New Yorker.
0: How strange that David Remnick knows what he's doing. Um, (laughs) Okay, last question. What is the best writing advice that you can give a, a young or struggling writer? I don't know
2: if this is appropriate for everybody, but I made a resolution a couple of decades ago that I would only do things that were important or fun. I wanted to write, you know, it was a long time in the vineyards for me, you know, writing stories that I didn't really care about, uh, but learning my craft. But finally I decided enough of this. I'm just going to write things that were important. And then I thought, well, but I want to have fun too. So <laughs> I thought if, if you're, you know, life gives you many opportunities to choose from, but the axis for me is, is it important or is it fun? And sometimes both things happen. When but, you're lucky, yeah. And then, you know, you can structure a career that is uh, satisfying to you, regardless of how it might play out, you know, in terms of, popularity or whatever, at least you will be doing the things that you feel called to do.
0: Thank you to my guest, Lawrence Wright. You can, of course, pick up his books literally everywhere. Everything he writes is a bestseller, including the end of October. And you can follow him on his socials at Lawrence underscore right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Rough Draft. Stay safe out there and see you next time. Rough Draft is a Topic original series hosted by me, Reza Aslan. Executive produced by Reza Aslan, David Andrioni, Alfredo De Villa, and Safa Samizadeh Yazd. Executive producers for Topic are Ryan Chanatree, Anna Holmes, and Gina Constantinakos, with production aid from Russell Sperberg. Our music and theme is by Jacob Snyder, sound by Sean Oakley, editing and mixing by Will Stanton, with additional editing by Blake V. You can follow Rough Draft on Twitter, at Rough Draft Reza, on Facebook, at Rough Draft with Reza Aslan, or you can email us at roughdraftpodcast at topic.com. You can also follow me, Reza Aslan, at Reza Aslan. For transcripts and a list of full credits, go to topic.com slash rdpodcast. If you love this interview, be sure to check out our TV show, as well as Topic's original series and exclusive programming from around the world. Try it for free on the Apple TV app already on your favorite devices. You can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can also share your subscription between up to six family members with family sharing. That's what I do. Just go to apple.co slash topic. That's apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now.